0: You're listening to Out of the Box, a place for marketers to get inspired, get going and break out of the box. Hi, everyone. I'm your host, Jess Overton. Today, I'm joined by Alice Muir.
1: And I'm Alice Muir. Hi, everybody. A senior growth consultant on the retention team at Feature. Um, Feature is an awards-winning mobile marketing consultancy for the world's largest brands.
0: Awesome to have you here, Alice. Uh, We've actually had Andy from Feature on in the past, so if you guys want to check out his episode, I highly, highly recommend it. Uh, Alice has big shoes to fill today, uh, but I'm sure uh, uh, that she's going to do just beautifully. She's got a lot, a lot of interesting insights uh, into app business models, uh, monetization, optimization, and uh, uh, a lot of other things that we're going to cover today. But really, before we get into that, Alice, I always like to uh, to get a little bit of uh, a little bit of background on uh, on who we're talking to. So tell me a little bit about your uh, your experience and, and how you got into mobile marketing.
1: Sure. Um, I've been working in the retention team at Feature for the last nearly four years. Um, Before that I had quite a diverse career. I left school to start an electronic music and underground culture magazine for women and I ran that for about four years before deciding to become a student Um, and so I went to study law at Strathclyde University in Scotland where I'm from Um, but while I was at university I I realized I really missed being in the startup and tech world and the magazine that I ran had a large online presence so I already had an interest in Sort of growth marketing tactics and was kind of following growth marketing blogs and things like that. Um, I therefore decided to move to Berlin in order to work in that sort of uh, growth and tech scene after I graduated. Um, but br- initially, I had a very brief stint in, in social media marketing, realized that that wasn't really the right fit for me, and then very fortunately landed at Feature, which is where I've been ever since.
0: That's amazing. Uh, really, really interesting history I, I would love to hear more about the magazine that you started. How did you get to start that?
1: <laughs> I never actually really talk about the magazine um, in recent years. I don't really know what the answer for that is. Um, I think, so it's quite enjoyable to get the chance to talk about it today. I, I basically was growing up in Glasgow, which has a, a very kind of um, diverse sort of music scene. And particularly there's there's a, a, quite a big sort of electronic music scene um, I had, you know, taken an interest in that when I was sort of at school and was kind of like in my later teens. And um, I started to, at the same time, work for a woman who ran a sort of creative collective um in Glasgow as well and, and so I was kind of being exposed to all sorts of different creatives and started to kind of interview people like casually and then you know with the, with the view of it maybe being something small like a you know maybe just kind of like a small kind of um radio series or, or a podcast at that time and or a blog and then it kind of like snowballed into being this big sort of collective of other women who were interested in that kind of stuff um, and as I said, it had a, a large online presence, so I was looking at things like SEO at that time, and and also like different kind of blogging tools and things, and 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 that really was the kind of gateway for me into the the startup world, and also understanding things like guerrilla marketing and how to kind of bootstrap things, and and I don't like to use this term, but how to kind of growth hack a little bit as well, um, and that kind of opened those doors for me.
0: Just to get a point of reference here, what year are we talking roughly?
1: I think, believe it. I believe it started in 2010.
0: Did, oh, so you were really sort of in the in 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 the muck of it at the time.
1: Yeah, I was like seven. I don't want to get my age away, but I was like, I think it was like 16 or 17 when I actually started the concept, and then it grew into like a nationally distributed magazine. So it was in WH Smith, which is like our, I think Barnes and Noble. Like you know, you're kind of like a magazine and bookshop, basically. Yeah,
0: amazing. So actually, my next question was going to be, because you talked a little bit about the marketing side, you talked about SEO, you talked about sort of the 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 hacking things together, guerrilla marketing. I, I wanted to ask you then about the monetization. So I gather it was in print and it was being sold. How did you go about turning what sounds like a passion project to begin with into a revenue generator as it grew?
1: So what's really interesting about my career is it's kind of come full circle because Initially, um, I so while I was kind of launching my magazine, as I left school, I went to work for a publishing company in Glasgow um, and I would sit in this. my, My job was to sell subscriptions. Right. But it was like subscriptions to a physical magazine. So my job was to sit and call people up. Uh, who were already, um, first of all, call people who were already subscribers and ask them questions and sort of, and guide them to the conclusion that they needed to renew their subscription. Um, and also there was like the, the kind of cold leads, cold calling part as well. We were trying to acquire um new new customers new readers for this magazine so i was gaining that that experience on the side of sort of building a team around the the, the magazine and this kind of um creative collective that we were we were building ourselves um and yeah and and i'm not joking we we sat in an, in an office that we got um given through sort of uh startup funding and we literally cold called uh, local businesses that we felt you know local record stores um uh, you know fashion and and kind of arts um creative businesses and and we kind of like hustled for advertising that way and then later down the line when we had the wh smith magazine the, the, the sort of printed magazine magazine that was properly um distributed through retailers like wh smith um we uh yeah we, we started looking into subscription models and um how to kind of uh yeah pull together like a, a, a basic subscription model for the magazine um and probably if if it had kept going we might have looked into sort of a digital subscription as well so yeah really interesting how it's kind of come full circle actually with what I'm doing now
0: <laughs> absolutely so I think you know subscription is probably something that we're going to talk about a little bit more throughout this uh, uh, throughout our chat I do want to take things sort of back to basics though and if we if we're talking about the subscription business model mm-hmm. obviously. You, you referenced also the ad-based model uh, for we're talking purely magazines right now, but the transfer into apps is a very smooth one. So yeah. talk to me a little bit about the different business monetization models that you see for apps today. Mm-hmm. And uh, and maybe we can uh, uh, we can explore from there.
1: Yeah, this is an interesting question because there's a lot of ones that are really common that we see with most of the apps that we work with that feature and then there are some that are less common and some that have kind of become out of date as well um so like the most common are things like in-app advertising so I think the most famous example of that is something like Facebook um and then you have things like in-app purchases as well so I worked with a a French-based um app called Kiker, where people that were interested in rap music could buy beats um, from the app and those were one-off purchases so that's a good example of that um, also the freemium model so something where you know you can kind of start with the product on a on a free plan but then you would maybe upgrade for um, for more uh, you know for better sort of features and things like that um, and then there's like subscription-based models so headspace is actually a good example of an app that is now subscription only Um so you, can, you don't actually have the the free um user experience long term with, with Headspace beyond you know beyond the free trial. Um, and then finally there's things like usage-based pricing. So something like Miro or Figma where you might be adding users um, to the product and it's kind of based on on usage. Um, I think what's interesting as well is there are less common ones. So if we think back to the days of like the beginning of apps, for example, that the one that comes to mind is paid for apps. I don't know if you remember that, but you would get some Um, like, utility apps or whatever that would have a price and then it would be, like, a one-off price and you would pay for to basically download this app from the the app store. And it's really interesting how, like, even, you know, these kind of models have sort of revolutionized over over time and and have kind of evolved. Um, Yeah, I I find that really interesting.
0: I guess the reason that that sort of a model would have died out was because of the lack of of recurring, right? Without the recurring revenue, then it sort of,
1: yeah yeah exactly and even to think back on that is quite crazy like to think that people knowing what I know about trying to sort of monetize these products the idea of getting people to pay at the front like at the front door before they even really understand anything about the product the UX anything like that to me is just wild but obviously it worked at some point back then Um, Yeah. yeah
0: Yeah. So, I I mean, out of all of those models, do you think that there's one particular one that, that you think is best or is there one that you prefer to work with? Yeah,
1: I think this is an interesting question. There are definitely pros and cons of them all. Um, I've noticed this trend, I think you've talked about this as well, in the industry where everybody's kind of moving towards a subscription model. And I think, you know, it makes sense because subscriptions are the most reliable form of repeat income generation. Um, And obviously like they have the the greatest ability to um, project future revenue as well. Um, But what I would say is that there are some products and business models where there's definite friction between the product and a subscription model. And a really good example of that is um, dating apps. And I'm actually working with a dating app right now um, where, where this is a bit of an ongoing conversation. But if you think about like the success of a dating app, for example, From a product's perspective, it lies in the ability to match match people with a compatible partner and then ultimately remove the the user's need to have that dating app, right? So a long-term repeat subscription doesn't probably resonate in the minds of a lot of users because the idea of needing a long-term subscription to a dating app doesn't really make a lot of sense, right? Yeah, Absolutely. yeah and so like we see this quite a lot where a lot of these apps are just kind of moving towards this model but then there are these kind of intricacies that you need to think about and so that's where something like a mixed model can 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 a mixed monetization model can work really really nicely um because then you're you're kind of looking at the different cohorts of users, and and I plan to talk about this a little bit later as well, but you're talking, you're looking at different cohorts and different use cases, and then you're trying to sort of tie monetization models to the different use cases rather than sort of taking a blanket approach, like one size fits all users approach. And I think that can be a very smart way um, to move forward.
0: So when you're looking at the sort of you, you're you're talking about working with a dating app now that's I guess thinking about using a different or or perhaps testing a different monetization model than they're currently using. What sorts of KPIs or or you know what sort of success metrics are you are you looking at uh, when you're evaluating a specific business model to use?
1: Yeah, um. So I think the metrics definitely differ per model. Some let's start with like the basics. So Some of the common ones that we work with are obviously cost per acquisition. So that's where it becomes really important to um, plug the work of retention into like the acquisition team and to have that alignment Um, retention, retention, and of course, subscriber retention. Right. But I also think like free user um, retention is important as well, because if we're not sort of successfully onboarding and retaining users, then the likelihood of them subscribing in the first place is probably quite, quite low. Um, things like uh average average revenue per user monthly recurring revenue those kind of things are really important to look at as well and of course your your churn rate you want to be keeping an eye an eye on your sort of um your ratio there to make sure that we're kind of bringing in more users than than are churning as well um but yeah and I think another thing that's really important particularly if you've got a subscription business is to understand what and this sounds obvious but a lot of people miss this, and it's really to understand what your baseline conversion to membership um, rate is, uh, baseline conversion to membership percentage is as well. So that whatever experimentation you do around about that, you can understand whether you're sort of um, you're increasing that that baseline or not.
0: Interesting. I I actually want to know a little bit more about what what it means that when you say that people are people are missing that quite often to to keep their baseline or to measure their baseline that seems like it would be something that would be sort of that'd be abc can you can you dive yeah. a little bit into that
1: yeah it seems pretty straightforward um i've worked with a few I, I guess there's a few different factors to this i think sometimes what happens is companies maybe don't have like a great sort of tooling and like data and analytics infrastructure and so what ends up happening is they're working with something that could potentially be a bit hacky um, and 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 end up because of the effort that goes into building the dashboards and things they kind of end up looking at like vanity metrics um, so like I, I can think of a recent example where I you know I was kind of working on optimizing subscriptions and I was kind of like I kept asking this question like what is this baseline conversion to membership and I kept getting sent these dashboards that were things like click-through rates and 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 kind of like revenue like blended revenue and all this kind of stuff and I'm thinking this seems like a really simple question to act to answer um but I think a large part of that is just making sure that you've got like the right sort of tooling and setup and and that you I think data visualization is super important and a lot of teams when they're trying to maybe they're, they're kind of strapped on resources. They don't actually realize how impactful it, that can be to have the right sort of um, yeah visualization in front of you to, to understand those metrics. Does that kind of answer your question?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think you know the, my my sort of follow on question then is with with a I, I don't know what you want to call it those sort of a scrappy team that doesn't have a huge amount of of resources to put into data visualization. If you know if if that's sort of the case. How, how then do you recommend or, or how do you see developers working on uh, uh, on tracking KPIs for the mixed models? Because, you know, when you're talking about mixed model per use case, and that yeah. definitely resonates for me, right? You've got to understand okay. who you're marketing what to and and what sorts of model and user journey they're going to go through in the app. But that sounds like it would be a relatively intricate thing to to track. Uh, certainly, at an early stage, and I would guess in later stages as well. How how do you think how do you think developers should look at that?
1: Yeah, that's a, an interesting question and a, and a difficult one as well. I think two things. One is um, making sure that you understand your segmentation, right? So, making sure to segment by the different use cases um, of the app and the monetization model that you're kind of targeting with those use cases. And then you would be focused on those those metrics that are relevant, kind of, you know, on on their own within that looking at that use case. Um, So that's like one way of doing it. So instead of a blended approach where you're just kind of trying to keep an eye on all of these metrics for all things at all times is really kind of splitting it out by use case and and attaching these metrics to the right, uh, the right use case and the right uh, monetization model that matches and then i think the other thing as well is you can also look at like things like average revenue per user as well which is which is obviously more of a kind of blended approach but if you're looking at like say for example you're trying to match your average revenue per user user with for example your cost of acquisition um that would be like one way to sort of look at look at it more kind of holistically if if that makes sense but it is it is an interesting question i'm not sure if i've got even like the right answer to that other than to sort of segment and don't try to look at everything as like one one whole piece, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, for sure. So then in, in the end, your North Star KPI then really is your cost of acquisition versus your, uh, uh, your average revenue per user.
1: Yes, exactly, exactly. But then not just leaving it there, but actually understanding that it's not a one size fits all approach and that really you should, like for example, if you've got um, subscribers that, for i'm trying to think of a good example like if you've got for example a uh an app where you can get like research publications right there might be some people who literally just need one publication a year if that and therefore a one-off purchase makes sense for them um and so that's like a different cohort of user with totally different behavior to someone who perhaps works in an academic field like law who needs to regularly be checking like journals and publications and stuff like that and so like i personally like, i wouldn't think it would make sense to sort of try to lump them together but rather we should be kind of segmenting and then viewing those metrics differently if that makes sense
0: yeah for sure you know we we've talked a little bit about you know how measuring uh monetization models should work when you're switching monetization model to choosing i i've i've spoken with a lot of of developers recently and specifically with the sort of Macroeconomic backdrop of the last three, four, five months. Uh, I, I think that monetization really has become something that everybody is now focusing on. Uh, and if yes. you're not yet focusing on it, then then you should probably start. Uh, and and I think there are a lot of preconceived notions, you know, about monetization that I see that that some people have as they're starting to get into uh, uh, into the weeds on monetization. Can you discuss some of those notions that uh, that you might have come across in the past?
1: yeah this is interesting as well I think um some of the some of the things that I've seen I mean obviously I come from like the retention and CRM perspective but I think in a lot of organizations that I've worked with I've kind of seen this situation where there's this like monetization team that works on monetizing monetization issues and they're kind of like in silo in their own world and they don't really like integrate as much or they kind of Maybe that's not fair. They they're kind of maybe like telling other teams what what needs to be done, but it's a very sort of like siloed approach. Um and I think like but I'm a great believer in that all of the different teams um in a in a in a product kind of plug into the work of monetization if you think about it um that way. So, like for example, everything right from from um your actual product itself. So the product team needs to be making sure that they're kind of like keeping up with trends and making sure that the product continues to, to work and to stay relevant. Um, the CRM team is making sure that like we're guiding people to the right places in the product and without without being able to do that, um, you know, people are just gonna churn, right? Um, and then uh, you've got things like your your um, marketing, your, your data and analytics team who are there to sort of uh, give guidance around like these metrics that we talked about and making sure that the numbers make sense. And even right down to like your customer service um, team as well can play an incredibly important part in churn prevention because they're the ones that are collecting real time feedback um, from customers that can then feed back into that product team. And then the loop kind of starts again. So I understand that there is a need, you know, in some cases there is a need to sort of focus on monetization as a team and as a, as a group. But I, I think that it's quite I think people need to realize that actually monetization is like a is like a kind of shared, is a shared team or cross team initiative.
0: So how, how do you go about operationalizing that? Because you know there's there's obviously teams of different sizes for for every different app, but you're talking about uh, what I think four, if I counted correctly, or five teams, right? Within that 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 you you've got to assume that those numbers start to start to get pretty big pretty quick. So how yeah. do you turn that into an actual operational strategy that that works
1: so there's a lot of layers to this i think the first one is particularly in high growth companies or high growth startups sometimes it's about as simple as creating those relationships right like if people are not talking to each other and they don't really know that each other exists they also don't really know what each other are working on and again that sounds like such a simple thing but a lot of the companies that we that are some of the some of the companies that we work with like you really see these silos where these teams just have no idea like what, like, I don't know, marketing or CRM does. So I think step one is like relationship building. And we even see that with our clients. Like, you know, we mostly work with our clients remotely. Um, obviously, we're based in Berlin. We've got a lot of clients in like the States and stuff um, or all over Europe. And I think that um, I, I see it myself, as soon as we get on site with a client and we kind of um, put a face to the name and sort of get to know them in person, that like, like all of a sudden collaboration becomes much easier. There must be some psychological part of that. Right. So step one is like making sure that you're facilitating things like um, an all hands where everybody within that, within the relevant departments gets together and they're kind of um, talking about each other's initiatives um, and how these plug into like one kind of North star, one kind of common goal. Right. And then the second is, and I think feature has always been really good at this is To continue to evolve and um, investigate technology that makes the facilitation of that easier. So, one thing that um, a couple of colleagues of mine have done is they've built out, uh, we use Airtable a lot. And one thing that we really love about Airtable is is that you can have a lot of different things that are related to the work of a product um, company um, in one place, right? And have it shared, and everybody's got access to it. And things like for example, having like a combined campaign backlog, um, where everybody that's prioritized, there's lots of different frameworks for prioritization of initiatives. Um, So making sure that you've got like a kind of a backlog of initiatives that the company wants to work on that's prioritized, that's accessible to everybody, everybody can see it. um, And they know what the, the impact, the projected impact is, and they know what what should be next in the pipeline for example but then also another really important thing and again this sounds really simple is to make sure that there's democratization of data as well so making sure that everybody across those teams that we mentioned understands the product's taxonomy as well so they actually understand like um you know for example if you're working in crm um and then you're kind of you want to combine with like the data team to pull reports together um, it's making sure that everyone's speaking the same language and understands what your your product's core events are and that shouldn't be different between teams but so often it really is um you know quite often we have situations where we're maybe working on an engagement and the acquisition team at feature is also working on with the same product to the same client and we have to kind of work together to have this mindset mindset shift with the client that the events and things that the and the data that acquisition team are looking at should somehow plug into like the retention side as well, so that it's all kind of fitting together like a jigsaw puzzle. So yeah, relationships and then like constantly evolving and looking into tech that makes that makes those relationships easier um, to evolve.
0: I think that's a a very comprehensive answer and certainly something that uh, that hopefully. Uh, a lot of our listeners can uh, can sort of take home and, and implement. I want to talk. I want to talk a little bit about uh, uh, some of the less intuitive, maybe, changes uh, that in an app that can that can have uh, uh, that can have an effect on specifically, I guess, subscription models because because that's what I've really been looking into uh, in, in the in the recent past. Yeah. Um, I guess I'd start then maybe with with something that's intuitively impactful, which would be pricing. How do you think about setting pricing, changing pricing, testing pricing? Walk me through that. Walk me through pricing.
1: Yeah, this is really interesting for me. I I um, very recently actually listened to a podcast that um, Robbie Kelman Baxter was on. Um, she's a famous uh, subscription uh, consultant. And she was talking about this exact question and talking about pricing. And I thought she made some really, really good points here um, where she was saying that like the, the most important thing for any product is to find product market fit first, right? Because if you have a product that fits into people's lives and solves a problem um, that they then, you know, use repeatedly and almost like can't live without, uh, people will pay like the, 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 there is a kind of window of what people would be willing to to pay with, like with, you know, within reason. Obviously, if your favorite app started charging, you know, like thousands just jumped overnight and started charging thousands, you would notice that, and most people would turn right. But within reason, like I think people get really bogged down on or oh, we need to make it like $12 versus like $14 or whatever but actually if you've got product market fit and you've got scale pricing in itself is probably not really um it's is probably not going to really make that much of a difference if that makes sense so she she made some really interesting points about that and I thought that made a lot of sense um, however I there are some like different theories around this I know that For example, Jake Moore, he had this really comprehensive um, Twitter threads recently about something called something like hundreds lessons from growing subscription apps. And and he'd he said that, you know, he'd kind of collected data from different subscription apps and that there were, you know, these prices that just worked for subscription for subscriptions, um, particularly subscription apps. Um, and and that was also very interesting for me. I think being on like the the, the sort of consultancy side, we don't really get to be as hands on as I would like with price testing, for example. That tends to be something that is really kind of sits with with the product team, um, and and can and can be you know the product team can be quite sort of protective of that as well. Um, it's definitely something that I would love to dive into um, deeper at some point. But those are just some. Two really interesting things that I've kind of read recently that I thought were, were very good points.
0: Very interesting. And and so you said that mostly the the, the price testing sits with the product team. That's that seems strange to me.
1: Yeah, product or monetization. But I guess it kind of makes sense, right? Because every time, you know, especially with an app, every time you make updates to your pricing, you also have to make updates to like the the SKUs or the SKUs, however you want to pronounce it. Um, And that requires a, a sort of infrastructure lift. And I think this is something actually that is really interesting that people don't um sort of think about when you think about, you know, monetization, optimizations and pricing and things, they kind of think that, one team is just going to come in and sort of solve all of these problems. But what they often overlook is that there, there's a huge sort of infrastructure left that goes into that. Um, everything from, you know, like the um, product team having to actually do the, the kind of the, the, the technical updates, the the marketing team having to put, in CRM having to sort of put out like the communications, I mean, those kind of things. And then things like even like your legal, like your T's and C's, all of the you know all of the kind of contractual stuff if that's relevant like is not something that you can just kind of test willy-nilly like from one day to the next it's it really requires everybody in the business to be to be sort of working towards towards a common goal if that makes sense
0: do you think that the fact that so many that there are so many moving parts in testing or changing monetization is something that holds back a lot of developers from actually doing those changes from whether it's changing model or even a b testing pricing
1: i think so i mean it's quite common with product teams i mean i I feel like this is always the case that there's a lack of resources right no matter no no matter how big your your tech company is like it just always seems to be the case that there's like a lack of, of of resources um and again, like people sometimes don't understand what like what should be like the priority and, and, and how to prioritize initiatives based on what's going to bring business impact. um, And I, and yeah, and I think that that often happens, like, you know, companies just they, they kind of set and forget that the, the pricing or the monetization strategy at the beginning. And it's usually something, you know, a decision that's kind of made by the founders as well. And then everybody else just kind of organizes themselves around that. But then. I think like this is also kind of silly and a bit short sighted because over time, particularly in the subscription business at the moment, if you're not constantly evolving, you're going to get left behind no matter how big a player you are. I mean, we've seen that. I've been really shocked. I don't know about you, but I've been really kind of shocked about, um, you know, the, the, the sort of everything that's been in the news about Netflix over the last like year and a half. I mean, who would have thought a few years ago like who would have thought that Netflix would ever have been any any (laughs) any sort of trouble like that it just felt like they they owned the market and like they had yeah and and everybody was on Netflix and 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 that it was basically untouchable but it's you know they're they're proof that that's not actually the case um so yeah it is a bit short-sighted but I do think that an understanding of how to sort of yeah prioritize and uh, initiatives is 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 a way to go. Um, to know when to sort of uh to start kind of, yeah, looking at your monetization models.
0: And when when you start to look at those monetization models, what what do you think are sort of the leading risks? Right, I think the 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 one that I can pick out from from the last couple of minutes of our conversation is that the teams are going to be moving out of sync, right? And I think that that's that's certainly you know one of the one of the leading risk factors, and and can certainly Lead to a, a, a poorer user experience. What other risk factors do you see, or or do you need to to mitigate when you're starting to test your monetization model?
1: Uh, so I think there's a few things. So um, first of all, the most obvious would be like a declining subscriber retention um, curve, right? So if people are not either they're not kind of they're turning off also renew halfway through their subscription, or they're turning at the end of the subscription never coming back then you might be asking yourself like what what is what's going on here what problem are we not able to solve for these users and then really like getting into the, the nitty-gritty of like what is the problem as well right is it is it a case that is it an onboarding problem is it like a product market fit problem um you know they like i think quite often people jump to oh it must be like price and packaging but like no i think i think there's so many other things that you need to think about before you can just kind of jump to that conclusion a really good example is we worked on not myself personally but i i i was talking about this at a conference recently um that feature had worked um on a with a product called empiricus which was like a kind of an app for um for being able to access uh, research publications and um uh, and and sort of financial um publications and data and things like that and they had a bunch of subscribers who would subscribe and then they would instantly churn because they couldn't find the reports that they had initially paid for. Right. So like if Empiricus hadn't like done the investigation to really understand what was going on there, they might have just thought, right, or, you know, we're, we're priced too high or whatever. And it just kind of gone off on this tangent, but actually the really good thing about that case study was like, they were able to pinpoint like where in the product life cycle, the problem was happening. And then they could kind of like, and then they were like, okay, we need to obviously have like a proper CRM onboarding um, program or start experimentation with the onboarding and that kind of worked for them. So I think, yeah, just really, uh, yeah, getting into the nitty gritty of the data and really understanding like where those problems are happening is important.
0: For sure. I guess the risk, the risk that I was thinking of was, was really in the application. So you talked about, right, uh, you're seeing an increase in churn. Uh, decline in, in renewal of subscriptions at the end of the period. And you've come to the conclusion that, that a change needs to be made. And I think you just, you addressed quite nicely the, you know, what you need to start to think of that pricing and packaging isn't the, isn't necessarily where you should start. But one of the, uh, one of the examples that, that comes to mind in terms of risk for me, at least is uh, I think Netflix in France, if I'm not mistaken, mm-hmm. uh, a couple of years ago, we doing A-B testing on price. And not surprisingly very quickly uh, on Reddit and all sorts of other places, people started talking about the fact that people were getting different prices and why should I pay more when the guy down the street is paying less? And, you know, they were exposed to this sort of AB test and obviously it it sort of blew up and, 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 and they had to kill the AB test pretty quickly, but that is as a, you know, a sort of a risk factor when they were implementing that that was an AB test that, Probably seemed pretty innocuous, maybe at the time, and turned out to actually be pretty harmful. Uh, I, I don't know what the what the end of the story was, whether there was massive churn or or whatever. Yeah. Uh, but uh, you know, w- when when implementing these sorts of changes, what do you think that developers should be "quote unquote" worried about, or what what are those problems that they should be solving for now, so that so that they don't create a stir in their user base?
1: Think the netflix example is a great one i think um another example is similar to that is patreon so obviously when patreon started it had like such a tight community of of um users that talked to each other right there was you know online communities like they talked to each other and so like a b testing something like pricing with patreon would need would be a very very like um a very sensitive topic as well right um netflix is that's an interesting one because obviously netflix has got scale and your netflix users not typically going to be um speaking to each other so i think like it would surprise me you know perhaps maybe if it was like it'd be tested on different sort of geographics or something might be quite different to you know potentially people within the same household seeing, <laughs> seeing the <laughs> different faces so that that sounds to me like a bit of a, a, blo- a blooper to be honest but um and obviously I don't know the details of that, but I think this this kind of fits with a, a conversation that I've had with one of our um principal data analysts actually very recently. Um it's very topical for us at the moment, where we're trying to encourage some of our team the teams that we work with to not just kind of jump into A B testing um as well, but also be like like to be asking the question like, isn't an B test the right um, the right strategy for what we want to do, and for this type of product. And when I mean this type of product, I mean like thinking about who are your user base. Um, are you know are people going to be pissed about this? Like, are people going to be speaking to each other? Like, what kind of scale do we have? What stage of of a business do we have? Um, you know, do we have scale yet or not? And really like asking those questions. And I think one another thing that we've done at Feature that I've always quite enjoyed as well is we've paid a lot of attention to things like um nps and and sort of collecting and i know there's you know there's various different opinions about nps in in the industry um but i i think that one thing that we've been able to do through crm is like continuously like collect um you know real-time kind of responses from people within the product um and and to kind of collect that information and then sort of have it populate in like in a dashboard and in real-time um, and I think that's also been like a great thing for really getting to the crux of like what the issues are, um, you know, with, with your products and, and with, with kind of overall happiness. Uh, but what I would say is, is that the cat one caveat to that is you've got to be careful when relying on qualitative data, because quite often users say something and then they behave, <laughs> we see in the user behavior that actually their behavior is, is quite different. So I think, yeah, going back to your question. I think just being a, just being mindful of the type of product, asking yourself the question like is this something that yeah, it might benefit me to get some quick learnings but ultimately it's going to piss off a whole lot of people and 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 we're going to just generate a whole lot of churn. Um and 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 really understanding like your your users and their needs and and the type of community that you have. And I think another thing as well is is just to be super like if you are making any changes tip what i found is, is that people tend to be okay and reasonable with changes as long as you communicate them and as long as you sort of have a rollout plan right to, to kind of wake up and say right tomorrow we're gonna completely change like your income stream um you know for youtubers or something like that it's not gonna yep. really be good but to have like a proper rollout plan and communication plan is like don't dismiss that it's really really important
0: and then you come full circle back to that uh uh, that cross-team collaboration, where everybody's got to have their their piece, and everybody's got to be working sort of in conjunction to to make sure that uh, the monetization piece really falls into place.
1: Yeah, like exactly. Like the customer service and marketing teams would play a huge part in any kind of rollout um, that's going to you know fundamentally change the product or pricing packaging.
0: Very cool, Well, Alice. This has been a a, a really insightful conversation. I want to I want to close by asking you to share your most seemingly simple, but actually quite intricate best practice when it comes to monetization.
1: When it comes to monetization. So initially I had thought about this before and I was gonna give away my air table secrets at this point, but I think because we've already talked about that, um, I think something else that I have um, work, been working with my uh, teams on is, understanding certain metrics to to track as well that people maybe overlook so a couple of those and I think this is something as well that Jake Moore um from Super Bowl has also talked about a lot um and we've kind of uh, worked on this with our teams and seen and seen results so a couple of things one is track your install to paywall view right so make sure that you understand of all the people that are coming into your product, And when I say paywall, I'm not just talking subscription. I mean, install to the point of conversion view, if that makes sense. Um, make sure mm-hmm. you understand of all the new users that come in, because we know that like churn is really high on that day one period. So make sure you know that um, all, the, all the new users that come in have a chance to see the premium products, right? Get that visibility in front of them. And you'd be surprised at the amount of people that don't do that. Um, and then also track your average. Um, another good thing to do is to track your average time to subscribe, right? So if we know that most users, it takes, for example, um, you know, 48 hours to, to become a subscriber, then you know that for all users that surpass that 48-hour period and ha- still haven't subscribed, you can start working on sort of like win-back strategies and discounts and, and, and promos for those people too. So those are just two things that quite often get overlooked that are quite good hacks.
0: Amazing. Well, hopefully our listeners can take that and implement and, uh, and they'll see an uptick in, uh, in their monetization.
1: Brilliant. Thank you. So Alice,
0: much. thank you very much for, uh, for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure.
1: Thank you. It's been a pleasure too.